Section 17 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 25, The Eastern Question, Part 1. For forty years England had been at peace. There had indeed been little wars here and there with some of her Asiatic and African neighbors, and once or twice, as in the instance of the quarrel between Turkey and Egypt, she had been menaced for a moment with a dispute of a more formidable kind and nearer home. But the trouble had passed away, and from Waterloo downward England had known no real war. The new generation was growing up in a kind of happy belief that wars were things of the past for us, out of fashion, belonging to a ruder and less rational society, like the wearing of armor and the carrying of weapons in the civil streets. It is not surprising, if it seemed possible to many, that the England of the future might regard the instruments and the ways of war with the same curious wonder as that which Virgil assumes would one day fill the minds of the rustic laborers whose plows turned up on some field of ancient battle the rusted swords and battered helmets of forgotten warriors. During all the convulsions of the continent, England had remained undisturbed. When bloody revolutions were storming through other capitals, London was smiling over the dispersion of the Chartists by a few special constables. When the armies of Austria, of Russia, of France, of Sardinia were scattered over vast and various continental battlegrounds, our troops were passing in peaceful pageantry of review before the well-pleased eyes of their sovereign in some stately royal park. A new school, as well as a new generation, had sprung up. This school, full of faith but full of practical, shrewd logic as well, was teaching with great eloquence and effect that the practice of settling international controversy by the sword was costly, barbarous, and blundering as well as wicked. The practice of the duel in England had utterly gone out. Battle was forever out of fashion as a means of settling private controversy in England. Why then should it be unreasonable to believe that the like practice among nations might soon become equally obsolete? Such certainty was the faith of a great many intelligent persons at the time when the coalition ministry was formed. The majority tacitly acquiesced in the belief without thinking much about it. They had never in their time seen England engaged in European war, and it was natural to assume that what they had never seen they were never likely to see. Anyone who retraces attentively the history of English public opinion at that time will easily find evidence enough of a commonly accepted understanding that England had done with great wars. Even then, perhaps, a shrewd observer might have been inclined to conjecture that by the very force of reaction a change would soon set in. Man, said Lord Palmerston, is by nature a fighting and quarreling animal. This was one of those smart, saucy generalizations characteristic of its author, and which used to provoke many graver and more philosophic persons, but which nevertheless often got at the heart of a question in a rough-and-ready sort of way. In the season of which we are now speaking, it was not, however, the common belief that man was by nature a fighting and a quarreling animal, at least in England. Bad government, the arbitrary power of an aristocracy, the necessity of finding occupation for a standing army, 
the ambitions of princes, the misguiding lessons of romance and poetry, these and other influences had converted man into an instrument of war. Leave him to his own impulses, his own nature, his own ideas of self-interest, and the better teachings of wiser guides, and he is sure to remain in the paths of peace. Such was the common belief of the year or two after the great exhibition, the belief fervently preached by a few and accepted without contradiction by the majority, as most common beliefs are, the belief floating in the air of the time and becoming part of the atmosphere in which the generation was brought up. Suddenly, all this happy, quiet faith was disturbed, and the long peace which the hero of Tennyson's Maud says he thought no peace was over and done. The hero of Maud had, it will be observed, the advantage of explaining his convictions after the war had broken out. The name was indeed legion of those who, under the same conditions, discovered like him that they had never relished the long, long peace, or believed in it much as a peace at all. The Eastern question it was that disturbed the dream of peace. The use of such phrases as the Eastern question, borrowed chiefly from the political vocabulary of France, is not in general to be commended, but we can in this instance find no more ready and convenient way of expressing clearly and precisely the meaning of the crisis which had arisen in Europe. It was strictly the Eastern question, the question of what to do with the East of Europe. It was certain that things could not remain as they then were, and nothing else was certain. The Ottoman power had been settled during many centuries in the southeast of Europe. It had come in there as a conqueror, and had remained there only as a conqueror occupies the ground his tents are covering. The Turk had many of the strong qualities, and even the virtues of a great warlike conqueror, but he had no capacity or care for the arts of peace. He never thought of assimilating himself to those whom he had conquered or them to him. He disdained to learn anything from them. He did not care whether or no they learned anything from him. It has been well remarked that of all the races who conquered Greeks, the Turks alone learned nothing from their gifted captives. Captive Greece conquered all the world, except the Turks. They defied her. She could not teach them letters or arts, commerce or science. The Turks were not, as a rule, oppressive to the races that lived under them. They were not habitual persecutors of the faiths they deemed heretical. In this respect, they often contrasted favorably with states that ought to have been able to show them a better example. In truth, the Turk, for the most part, was disposed to look with disdainful composure on what he considered the religious follies of the heretical races who did not believe in the prophet. They were objects of his scornful pity rather than of his anger. Every now and then, indeed, some sudden fierce outburst of fanatical cruelty towards some of the subject sects horrified Europe and reminded her that the conqueror who had settled herself down in her southeastern corner was still a barbarian who had no right or place in civilized life. But as a rule, the Turk did not care enough about the races he ruled over to feel the impulses of the perverted fanaticism which would strive to scourge men into the faith itself believes needful to salvation. At one time, there can be little doubt that all the powers of civilized Europe would gladly have seen the Turk driven out of our continent. 
but the Turk was powerful for a long series of generations, and it seemed for a while rather a question whether he would not send the Europeans out of their own grounds. He was for centuries the great terror, the nightmare of Western Europe. When he began to decay, and when his aggressive strength was practically all gone, it might have been thought that the Western powers would then have managed somehow to get rid of him. But in the meantime, the condition of Europe had greatly changed. No one not actually subject to the Turk was afraid of him any more, and other states had arisen strong for aggression. The uncertainties of these states, as to the intentions of their neighbors and each other, proved a better bulwark for the Turks than any warlike strength of their own could any longer have furnished. The growth of the great Russian Empire was of itself enough to change the whole conditions of the problem. Nothing in our times has been more remarkable than the sudden growth of Russia. The rise of the United States is not so wonderful, for the men who made the United States were civilized men, men of our own race, who might be expected to make a way for themselves anywhere, and who were, moreover, put by destiny in possession of a vast and splendid continent, having all variety of climate and a limitless productiveness, and where they had no neighbors or rivals to molest them. But Russia was peopled by a race who even down to our own times remained in many respects little better than semi-barbarous, and she had enemies and obstacles on all sides. A few generations ago, Russia was literally an inland state. She was shut up in the heart of Eastern Europe as if in a prison. The genius, the craft, and the audacity of Peter the Great first broke the narrow bounds set to Russia of his day, and extended her frontier to the sea. He was followed after a reign or two by a woman of genius, daring, unscrupulousness, and profligacy equal to his own, the greatest woman probably who ever sat on the throne, Elizabeth of England, not even accepted. Catherine II so ably followed the example of Peter the Great that she extended the Russian frontier in directions which he had not had the opportunity to stretch to. By the time her reign was done, Russia was one of the great powers of Europe, entitled to enter into negotiations on a footing of equality with the proudest states of the continent. Unlike Turkey, Russia had always showed a yearning after the latest developments of science and of civilization. There was something even of affectation, provoking the smiles of an older and more ingrained culture, in the efforts persistently made by Russia to put on the garments of Western civilization. Catherine the Great, in especial, had set the example in this way. She invited Diderot to her court. She adorned her cabinet with a bust of Charles James Fox, while some of the personal habits of herself and of those who surrounded her at court would have seemed too rude and coarse for Eskimo, and while she was putting down free opinion at home with the severity worthy only of some medieval Asiatic potentate, she was always talking as though she were a disciple of Rousseau's ideas and a pupil of Chesterfield in manners. This may have seemed ridiculous enough sometimes, and even in our own days the contrast between the professions and the practices of Russia is a familiar subject of satire, but in nations at least the homage which imitation pays often wins for half-conscious hypocrisy as much success as earnest and sincere endeavor. A nation that tries to appear more civilized than it really is ends very often by becoming more civilized than its neighbors ever thought it likely to be. 
The wars against Napoleon brought Russia into close alliance with England, Austria, Prussia, and other European states of old and advanced civilization. Russia was, during one part of that great struggle, the leading spirit of the alliance against Napoleon. Her soldiers were seen in Italy and in France, as well as in the east of Europe. The semi-savage state became, in the eyes of Europe, a power charged along with others with the protection of the conservative interests of the continent. She was recognized as a valuable friend and a most formidable enemy. Gradually it became evident that she could be aggressive as well as conservative. In the war between Austria and Hungary, Russia intervened and conquered Austria's rebellious Hungarians for her. Russia had already earned the hatred of European liberals by her share in the partition of Poland and her manner of dealing with the Poles. After a while it grew to be a fixed conviction in the mind of the liberalism of Western Europe that Russia was the greatest obstacle then existing in civilization to the spread of popular ideas. The Turk was comparatively harmless in that sense. He was well content now, so much as his ancient ambition shrunk and his ancient war spirit gone out, if his strong and restless neighbors would only let him alone. But he was brought at more than one point into a special collision with Russia. Many of the provinces he ruled over in European Turkey were of Sclavonian race and of the religion of the Greek church. They were thus affined by a double tie to the Russian people, and therefore the manner in which Turkey dealt with those provinces was a constant source of dispute between Russia and her. The Russians are a profoundly religious people. No matter what one may think of their form of faith, no matter how he may sometimes observe that religious profession contrasts with the daily habits of life, yet he cannot but see that the Russian character is steeped in religious faith or fanaticism. To the Russian fanatic there was something intolerable in the thought of a Sclav population professing the religion of the Orthodox Church being persecuted by the Turks. No Russian ruler could hope to be popular who ventured to show a disregard for the national sentiment on this subject. The Christian populations of Turkey were to the Russian sovereigns what the Germans of Schleswig-Holstein were to the great German princes of later years, an indirect charge to which they could not, if they would, profess any indifference. A German prince, in order to be popular, had to proclaim himself enthusiastic about the cause of Schleswig-Holstein. A Russian emperor could not be loved if he did not declare his undying resolve to be the protector of the Christian populations of Turkey. Much of this was probably sincere and single-minded on the part of the Russian people and most of the Russian politicians, but the other states of Europe began to suspect that mingled up with benign ideas of protecting the Christian populations of Turkey might be a desire to extend the frontier of Russia to the southward in a new direction. Europe had seen by what craft and what audacious enterprises Russia had managed to extend her empire to the sea in other quarters. It began to be commonly believed that her next object of ambition would be the possession of Constantinople and the Bosphorus. It was reported that a will of Peter the Great had left it as an injunction to his successors to turn all the efforts of their policy toward that object. The particular document, which was believed to be a will of Peter the Great, enjoined on all succeeding Russian sovereigns never to relax in the extension of their territory northward on the Baltic 
and southward on the Black Sea shores, and to encroach as far as possible in the direction of Constantinople and the Indies. To work out this, raise wars continually, at one time against Turkey, at another against Persia, make dockyards on the Black Sea, by degrees make yourselves masters of that sea as well as of the Baltic, hasten the decay of Persia, and penetrate to the Persian Gulf, establish, if possible, the ancient commerce of the East via Syria, and push on to the Indies, which are the entrepot of the world. Once there, you need not fear the gold of England. We now know that the alleged will was not genuine, but there could be little doubt that the policy of Peter and of his great follower Catherine would have been in thorough harmony with such a project. It therefore seemed to be the natural business of other European powers to see that the defects of the Ottoman government, such as they were, should not be made an excuse for helping Russia to secure the objects of her special ambition. One great power above all the rest had an interest in watching over every movement that threatened in any way to interfere with the highway to India, still more with her peaceful and secure possession of India itself. That power, of course, was England. England, Russia, and Turkey were alike in one respect. They were all Asiatic as well as European powers. But Turkey could never come into any manner of collision with the interests of England in the East. The days of Turkey's interfering with any great state were long over. Neither Russia nor England nor any other power in Europe or Asia feared her any more. On the contrary, there seemed something like a natural antagonism between England and Russia in the East. The Russians were extending their frontier toward that of our Indian Empire. They were showing in that quarter the same mixture of craft and audacity which had stood them in good stead in various parts of Europe. Our officers and diplomatic emissaries reported that they were continually confronted by the evidences of Russian intrigue in Central Asia. We have already seen how much influence the real or supposed intrigues of Russia had in directing our policy in Afghanistan. Doubtless there was some exaggeration and some panic in all the tales that were told of Russian intrigue. Sometimes the alarm spread by these tales conjured up a kind of Russian hobgoblin, bewildering the minds of public servants and making even statesmen occasionally seem like affrighted children. The question that at present concerns us is not whether all the apprehensions of danger from Russia were just and reasonable, but whether as a matter of fact they did exist. They certainly counted for a great deal in determining the attitude of the English people toward both Turkey and Russia. It was in great measure out of these alarms that there grew up among certain statesmen and classes in this country the conviction that the maintenance of the integrity of the Turkish Empire was part of the national duty of England. It is not too much, therefore, to say that the states of Europe generally desired the maintenance of the Ottoman Empire, simply because it was believed that while Turkey held her place, she was a barrier against vague dangers which it was not worthwhile encountering as long as they could possibly be averted. Sharply defined, the condition of things was this. Russia, by reason of her sympathy of religion or race with Turkey's Christian populations, was brought into chronic antagonism with Turkey. England, by reason of her Asiatic possessions, was kept in just the same state of antagonism to Russia. The position of England was trying and difficult. 
she felt herself compelled by the seeming necessity of her national interests to maintain the existence of a power which on its own merits stood condemned and for which as a power no english statesman ever cared to say a word the position of russia had more plausibility about it it sounded better when described in an official document or a popular appeal russia was the religious state which had made it her mission and her duty to protect the suffering christians of turkey england let her state her case no matter how carefully or frankly could only affirm that her motive in opposing russia was the protection of her own interests one convenient result of this condition of things was that here among english people there was always a wide difference of opinion as to the national policy with regard to russia and turkey many public men of great ability and influence were of opinion that england had no right to uphold the ottoman power because of any fancied danger that might come to us from its fall it was the simple duty of england they insisted to be just and fear not in private life they contended we should all abhor a man who assisted a ruffian to live in a house which he had only got into as a burglar merely because there was a chance that the dispossession of the ruffian might enable his patron's rival in business to become the owner of the premises the duty they insisted of a conscientious man is clear he must not patronize a ruffian whatever comes let what will happen that he must not do so it was according to their argument with national policy we are not concerned in discussing this question just now we are merely acknowledging a fact which came to be of material consequence when the crisis arose that threw england into sudden antagonism with russia End of section seventeen